Welcome to the Dive Podcast, presented by Willamette Week. I'm your host, Hank Sanders. Each week, we tackle a different issue that's uniquely Portland. So tune in every Saturday to hear a new episode complete with interviews and editorial that helps explain our city. From Portland's leading paper comes a brand new way to engage with the news, sports, arts, and culture. Stick around. Welcome back to the Dive Podcast. I'm your host, Tank Sanders. Thank you so much for joining us today on August 21st for the 34th episode of the podcast. Can you believe it's been that that many weeks since we started? Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sticking with us. We have a great show for you. We interview Shannon Gormley about her essay that was one of several essays that went into this week's cover story all about how to parent at the end of the world. I know it seems a little dark, but that's how times seem these days. I know every single summer in Portland feels like the uh, an unprecedented summer in terms of wildfires, heat, all the above, and it's just it does feel like the end of the world. So we're talking about how to parent at this time. So it's a very interesting cover story. We will go into depth more on some of the other cover stories as well, but our interview this week focuses on Shannon's story. So if you didn't read the cover story, then we'll we'll get you updated on all the stories that went into it. And if you did read the cover story, we'll we'll review it and, and go deep on, on them as well. So anyways, before our interview with Shannon, let's talk about all of the news, all of the big headlines that went into this week's stories. So here is the 90-second news flash. Here's a quick question for you. Do you like Oreos and naked dancers? If so, we have two stories that might make you very sad. First off, last week, over 200 employees at a Nabisco factory in northeast Portland walked out of their cookie and cracker factory to protest a new contract proposal. The workers want to negotiate a new contract that has a few alterations to the existing plans. One issue workers have with the new contract is that their parent company, Mondelez, would like to eliminate overtime pay on the weekends. Now, Sophie Peel, reporter for Lama Week, did a great job in this story, and she got to the hard-hitting issue that really concerned me while reading the story, and that is, so does that mean we don't get cookies for a, for a little while, right? Because all the, the factory lines stopped when they left and went to strike, the workers, that is. But Mondelez assured us that no, we will still be getting our cookies because the company has a contingency plan to produce Oreos during the strike. Quote, we have activated that plan and are committed to continuing to supply our delicious snacks to retailers and consumers. Now, I don't have a dog in this fight. I don't really know what's going on behind closed doors. But it does seem like if you have a contingency plan for how often your workers go on strike, you're, you're probably doing something a little wrong. Like, for example, if I had two episodes and one episode was always nixed by my editors because it was just too out there, too, too gross, too, too, uh, too far out there, too controversial. Maybe we just don't do that episode ever. Maybe we just make the normal one that gets aired. Like, why is there a contingency plan? Anyways, I thought that was a funny, funny quote. Great, great work by Sophie Peel. Now let's get to the story that really perked her ears up, and that is, why did we talk about naked dancers? Well, iconic club, nightclub, Mary's Club, is moving. It's downtown. If you look it up, you'll, you'll know the sign, right? We've all, we've all driven by it. They don't know where, or they won't tell us, at least, where they're moving to, but their building got sold, so they are moving from that iconic building. They hope to keep a couple things with them, including their sign, their white marquee sign, uh, as well as some memorabilia from the old from the old place. I never frequented that place. I never went in. But uh, but hey, I'm just here to report stories. So, 
Anyways, and actually, I didn't do any reporting there. That's all Andy Pruitt. So thank you, Andy, for bringing us that that news. And we will keep you posted, I'm sure, if if we get word on where it is headed to. But it's moving. So there's there's those two stories on cookies and naked dancers. Let's move on. Let's talk about vaccine mandates for a second here. Governor Kate Brown left it up to the school districts to decide independently whether or not to put forth a vaccine mandate for their employees. And Portland Public Schools did just that by requiring all of their employees be vaccinated by the time that they go back to in-person classes, which is September 1. So the clock's ticking on that. On the flip side, Multnomah County won't attempt a vaccine mandate for their bars and restaurants. Deborah Kafori says the county has no means to enforce such a rule and they cannot do so. So it's interesting to see the two flip sides on there with the school district imposing. I'm sure it's probably a lot easier for the school district to impose this mandate than for all bars and venues, but still an interesting discussion to be had there. Thank you very much to Aaron Mesh and Nigel Jayquist for your reporting on those stories. The Portland Opera is gearing up for in-person performances. You will, however, need a COVID-19 vaccination verification or a negative COVID-19 test. If you thought Smith Tea was only doing tea, well, you clearly are not up to date with their new experimental shop that is on 23rd and Gleason, Northwest Portland. They have sandwiches, salads, a variety of foods. It's actually really good. I've been there many times. I enjoy that place. It's a nice place to do some work, uh, read, hang out with friends, all the above. The bootleg fire is now 100% contained. Nike tells its employees that it is renaming the Alberto Salazar building. Uh, They are naming it to Next Percent, uh, according to Sophie Peel. Thank you for telling us all about that. They said that this change follows the safe port decision to permanently ban Alberto from coaching. The nature of allegations and finding and the finding of the lifetime ban makes it appropriate to change the name. This comes after Alberto was accused of body shaming athletes and other forms of misconduct. The new name, Next Percent, uh, reflects their new design project, which is a new line of running shoes. Well, folks, that's all the headlines, everything you got to know. This has been the 90 Second News Flash. We turn now to the main story of the week, and that concerns the Willamette Week cover written by Suzette Smith. Now, Suzette Smith took the place of Matthew Singer, who left Portland for Tucson, Arizona, and she now serves as the arts and culture editor for the paper. So thank you, Suzette, for joining the team. Great job with this, with this story. So this story comprises of actually five different stories. So let's talk about each and every single one, and we'll end with the one that we're going to go most deeply into, which is our interview with Shannon Gormley. First off, the paper interviewed several Portland Public School high school students who shared their thoughts about what it's like to have in-person classes, be returning to in-person classes, but also reflecting on what the past several months was like, the last school year with online school and what that what that whole deal was like and their, and their thoughts about returning. It's a really interesting piece that really puts us into the perspective of students who are going through this issue. Next up, we have a cure to the anxiety that parents might be facing as a normal school session is promised to return. All the anxieties that come with that from a parental level, how to cure that with weed, with cannabis. So if you're, if you're, if you're a pothead parent, uh, I love it. And there's an article for you all about how to overcome that, uh, that anxiety and those fears uh, with this hectic parenting with the perfect strains of weed. 
There are also two articles in this cover story concerning food. So one of them is about where you can get the cheapest and most delicious grilled cheese sandwich in the city. And another one is a child who rates and ranks the best store-bought macaroni and cheese. Now, I have a problem with this one. He gave Annie's mac and cheese a 3 out of 10. That is just absurd. Annie's deserves better. You cannot do Annie's like that. But... Everything else I really liked about that. I thought it was really fun to hear a child giving his perspective on the, the ultimate child food. So it really, a lot of fun stories, a lot of really interesting stories. With that, let's turn to the fifth and final story uh, that was involved in this cover story, and that is by Shannon Gormley. Now, this article concerns a nonprofit in Portland called Families for Climate. Now, this group seeks to make climate change and climate change advocacy a family affair, a family matter, and they seek to make it kind of fun. And the way that they do this is they hold classes and discussion groups for concerned parents who are working on raising their children during a time like this where we are experiencing unprecedented weather, it seems like, every single year. And with the forest fires rolling in and, and all types of issues like that, and as well as the pandemic, and dealing with those issues in a way that is responsible while also educating them. Along with this, they find that they also have gained success by incorporating classes and daycare for children because parents don't want to leave their children unattended. They don't want to have to get a babysitter uh, for yet another meeting on their agenda. So they try to make it as fun and family-oriented as possible while also making it a education and a community-based organization. So Shannon went to a few of these meetings told us what it's like to attend these meetings, what the vibes are like, what the parents are experiencing, what the classes are about, and we interviewed her on what her experience was covering this story. I hope you enjoy this interview. Thank you so much for listening. When you're writing this article and you're focusing on these people, these families who are trying to improve the lives for their children through advocating for climate change and climate health, what were like the main two issues that parents kept talking about as being reasons why they want to get involved in the in these programs that you're discussing? Well, um, you know, the, the biggest is that uh, climate change is really scary. But um, I think, it, you know, too, what one of the reasons why they wanted a parent specific group is that it's hard to engage in activism if um, you know, your entire day is booked with taking your kids to school, shopping for your kids, feeding your kids, getting them to bed. Um, and so what one of the, the co-founders of Families for Climate told me is that, you know, just adding another meeting into that day where you can't bring your kid, um, no one's, just no one's going to do that. So they made a group where, um, you know, everyone was bringing their kids, there was childcare at all the meetings, and God forbid if someone's kid does come running into the, the meeting room um, throwing a tantrum, no one's going to make a big deal because they've all been there before. Um, so, yeah. Tell me what came first when they were orchestrating this group. Was it, we need to get people involved and parents are an untapped group, so we need to figure out how to get parents in? Or was it, hey, we want to look at this as a way to educate, how do we educate young kids? Because I know that that's part of the group as well, is that they educate children about how to fight climate change and what they can do. So was it like, that? was that a byproduct of just having parents around? Or was that one of the original goals? It was, it was more focused on um, creating 
community for parents um, because one of the things they talked to me about is that they they don't want to burden kids with the sense that they have to save the world and it's up to them when you know a lot of the kids that they are uh working with are from you know ages five to like 12. so these are really young kids and um you don't want to immediately like throw upon them like the world is ending and you're gonna have to try and save it one day it was more like the parents wanted to find a way that they could become more actively involved while also you know preparing their kids emotionally for one day when they do learn in more detail um what's going on with climate that you know they will be prepared to process that information and feel a sense of agency that they can create change did the parents talk at all about what it was like after the meetings ended when they had to talk to their their children about about whether why there's smoke in the sky or why it's 115 and they have to go to cooling centers did that come up about what the parent child dialogue is like these days yeah um so most parents are doing that whether or not they're involved with a you know climate change activist group or not um and you know the the parents that i talked to the article um the the commonality that they said is that you know their kids are really curious and their kids you know they want to know and they are you know pretty prepared to to handle um you know a lot more things that we give them credit for um so yeah they have a lot of questions and they also have a pretty strong sense of justice um so an example um that i was given is that um it came up where kids were somehow asking their parents about essentially like sacrifice zones is what they're called where um, you have a dangerous oil plant or um, something that's producing a lot of like gas and pollution and the people who live around that area um, their health is sacrificed for um, this, this production or you know whatever's going on at the facility and so you know the kids are learning about sacrifice zones and the it's a lot easier for them to be like well that's not fair no one should have to live there um so their kids are a lot more likely just like that's not right that's not fair um they tend to see things more black and white um which sometimes can be helpful take us to a meeting tell us what's going on in those meetings what's being brought up well it's changed a lot in the past year obviously because now everything's on zoom um but I'm, you know at first you know their in-person meetings they were kind of just talking about uh you know what they wanted out of the group as parents um but now what they're doing is a lot of um like zoom talks like they'll get um a a speaker from no more free ways to come in and uh talk about that and then parents can ask questions um or uh, one big thing that they're working to educate people on now is um, the danger of just like methane stoves in your home. So they'll have a speaker coming in and like educating on that. So it's a lot more like um, like Zoom talks these days, like a speaker educating people and um, then parents asking questions and also oh. talking about action items and stuff. What percent of the meeting is educating versus advocacy and being a, you know, activist on this topic in the local community? 
Um, I'm not sure exactly what the exact percentages are and it, it changes a lot from meeting to meeting, but um, my sense is that it, it, the impression that I've gotten is um, that it, meetings are mostly educational and then the action points come after the meetings. So in a meeting, are they like, okay, so if you have a, have a car that doesn't average 18 or, you know, more than, you know, 25 or 18 miles a gallon, uh, then you should figure out how to move off that car. Like, is it something super tangible like that advice for, for parents? Yeah, I would say the meetings are more open-ended and then they, they often give, um, action items through like social media newsletters, um, like yeah, calls for action normally comes, um, outside of the meeting. What was most surprised from meeting to meeting, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you talked about how it's not, it's all online and you wrote about how it's all virtual. A big part of the meeting, a big part of this group in general is the in-person element, because that's why they bring in people to, uh, to babysit the children or to, you know, be with the children. That's why there's, you know, you included those quotes of the community bond that people felt when they were alone and they wanted to it during quarantine and they wanted to feel that group in person. So are there plans to bring it back in person anytime soon? Or is that really just dependent on when kids can get vaccinated? Um, I don't know exactly what factors they will use. Certainly one of the things that they're looking at, um, why they're not considering bringing it back in the near future is because kids can't be vaccinated. But yeah, they don't have any immediate plans to start doing things in person again. They did do like um, a a family bike ride um, yeah. a couple weeks ago, and they're doing one again this week, this Sunday. Um, but yeah, uh, they're they're not planning on doing meetings in person anytime soon. What was the most surprising thing that you found while reporting on this story? Um, well, honestly, I just hadn't thought a lot about what it's like to be a parent who also wants to be an activist. Like, you know, I've thought a lot about what it must be like to try and raise kids when it sometimes feels like the world could end in their lifetime. But um, yeah, it never occurred to me just how tough it is to find time to take action on the things that are like keeping you up at night. Um, so yeah, that was, that was interesting to, to hear parents talk about how they, um, that's something that they really wanted and couldn't fit into their lives for this. How many people are members of this group? Oh, ah, I, I don't know. It's kind of like, there, there's no like real official membership. So, I mean, sometimes there's dozens of people in the meeting. Um, anyone can, can like join in on the meetings. They're all free. They, they have like kids activities over Zoom as well. Those are all free. Anyone can sign up. Um, how, uh, I forget how many. There's between like five or eight board members. I think there's eight, but I forget off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, there's there's no dues or anything like that. So they're a relatively small nonprofit, and um, they do get a lot of their, their meetings are well attended. You attended some meetings. What is the vibe among the parents like? Is it doom and gloom? Is there hope? Is it, you know, I'm here to have fun and learn? What's the what's the experience like on the parents' end? I would say it's definitely not doom and gloom. It's very um, 
action focused. It's people who are using this as an outlet to not have doom and gloom. And uh, yeah, I would say it's, you know, of course, there's a lot of frustration um, that things aren't changing fast enough, but certainly a belief that things can be fixed. Grateful for the little things I love Well, folks, that's our show. Thank you so much for joining us. For Lama Week, I'm Hank Sanders. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Dive Podcast, presented by Willamette Week. For more information on this podcast or the biggest stories in Portland, go to wweek.com and follow Willamette Week on all socials. We're doing some really cool things related to the podcast on our Instagram and Twitter. Includes giveaways, behind the scenes, etc. A lot of cool things coming your way, so give those a follow. Special thanks to our guests for joining us, and thank you to Aaron Mesh, Mark Zussman, and Brian Panganibon, as well as the entire Willamette week family last but not least thank you so much to heather witty and ampmusic.co for the music that you hear on this podcast for willamette week i'm hank sanders this has been the dive podcast